Welcome back to the Women of Marvel podcast, where we assemble to chat all things Marvel and more. It's Judy. Hey, dudes, it's Sana. And we are back with another exciting, exciting, exciting 80th anniversary episode. And today we're talking all about the 1980s. And we're both 80s babies. So 80s, 80s babies. Don't tell anyone. Actually, I'm in the 90s. Or, yeah. Wait. Yeah, what? Did you just de-age yourself? I wanted to psych people out. Like they You just, just de-age yourself. They can't know how old I am. Okay. Um, but we are welcoming Anna Senti to the podcast today. Anna Senti was an editor here at Marvel in the 1980s and helped create and write some iconic characters, including Typhoid Mary. Yeah, and she actually, she was an editor. She became a writer. Back in the day, they would actually ask editors to write. They do not ask us anymore, <laughs> which is really annoying. Although, I have rewritten. You don't have any time I have rewritten. I don't have it, but I have rewritten some writers. But they've let me, so it's okay. But at that time, there was a lot more sort of, you know, integration between editorial and writing. And so she had a pretty impactful run on the Daredevil family. And she, um, I think, is probably one of the most, like, prolific female writers we've had and has has certainly made a mark in, in Marvel history. So it's always great to talk to her. She's a friend of Marvel, of course, and I always just enjoy understanding like what's going on in her world and what she's working on now. And she's also done some other things. Like She's been a journalist. Like She's done so much other stuff outside of Marvel since she's left. And she's probably like, why are you guys still talking to me about this? <laughs> but she's, she's also working on the Mohapapik exhibit, which is in Philadelphia right now, which is basically this great um, immersive Marvel experience going into the history of Marvel Comics and there's a lot of cool stuff there we will hopefully try to get out there ourselves maybe we'll do an event maybe we'll do a podcast I don't know I don't know I don't know but so she's still very much in touch with us and um, it was a super fun conversation so let's go chat with Anne hello Anne welcome to the podcast hi thank you for having me so we have had Anne on a Woman of Marvel podcast, like back, back in the day. In the OG, the OG years. I, yeah. I don't even know, Anne, if you remember this, but I think we had you like in a, we, we brought you to a closet. And it now we have- room. Yeah, it was the green room. Is Marvel out room. of the closet? We're well. <laughs> Shh. We, oh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> no, the only thing I remember is trying to teach you how to take down a man while you're walking yeah. and holding hands. <laughs> And then you, you guys were like, oh, I have a, there's a guy here. I want you to do that, too. Uh, oh, my God, I remember <laughs> that. A karate move. Didn't we make you do it to one of our video editors? I think we did. I wanted to. You guys stopped me. <laughs> hey, guess what? We're going to do a video this time, so maybe we should do <laughs> that in person. I'll do the takedown. All right, so Anne is really a sort of original woman of Marvel, we should say, because you were an editor back here in the 80s and became a writer. And you've done quite a lot and also some really incredible works from Daredevil to Typhoid Mary to Longshot and Mojo and the list goes on and on. And I just think it's so great to have our listeners get to know a little bit more about you and where you came from and how you got into the world of comics. You know, I I always preface anything I talk about that happened 30 years ago (laughs) with how can I really trust my memories? Just make it up. But I do <laughs> but I do remember that I needed a job and back then in eighties New York, everyone got the village voice. And the village voice had jobs, apartments, and you'd get a apartment and you get a job. And in the classifieds there was a little tiny every week I looked at editorial. And there was a little tiny editorial help needed and that was an ad 
and I came up to Marvel, and there was a woman there. They had personnel departments back then. Maybe they still do. And she said, well, when you get up here, I'll explain more what the job is. And I thought, okay, writing, editorial, I can do that. You know, what kind of writing? And then I got up, and there was the cutouts of Spider-Man and Captain America. And I interviewed with um, Jim Shooter. Who was, he was EIC at the time, right? Yes. Yes. Did you always love reading comics or superhero comics? When I was a kid, my parents, um, we didn't have a lot of comics around. But we had one volume of Dick Tracy, and I used to obsessively look at the villains' faces. And most kids loved the little, you know, the wristband, the, like, future Google Watch thing. But I liked the villains. And um, we also had a volume of Pogo. And that was the only comics I had as a kid. Why did you love the villains? Uh, I think they were just so fascinating the way they were drawn, the faces. They were so grotesque. I think I just found them. I had a kind of young monster love. You know, I always loved monsters. That's interesting. I feel like that probably informed a lot of your later storytelling. You told some dark stories. Yes, I told some dark stories. (laughs) I know. That makes so much more sense when you think about the characters we're about to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) So as folks know, like we've we've been talking about the 80 years of Marvel history, and this is a celebration. We've been celebrating the, the history of Marvel by decades, and we wanted to highlight Marvel in the 80s and what it was like. And you were obviously in the trenches, literally. What was it like when you got here and, you know, just the editorial experience, working with the kinds of writers and and artists that were here at the time? What was your on-the-ground experience? Well, I I felt like it was a mentor tank. Everyone was mentoring. So we had, you know, Louise Simonson was there, Joe Duffy was there, but most important, Marie Severin was there. And for I'm talking first about the females. And so you already had, you know, people say, oh, you were a trailblazer female at Marvel. And I always think, well, no, there was actually three really strong women there when I got there, especially Marie Severin. I was completely fascinated by her and by her work. And we we ended up doing a comic together, uh, Toxic Avenger, where (laughs) we were looking at the comic, and together we decided that his girlfriend, Toxie's girlfriend, decided, you know, we broke the fourth wall, and she decided she wanted to be the lead in the comic, and she wanted to be the hero in the comic. So it was sort of feminist, but tongue-in-cheek feminist. She went into the kitchen, and she took a bunch of pots and pans, and she made her outfit out of pots and pans, which is very, like, ironic, unfeminist, (laughs) anti-feminist. So me and Marie sat in the bullpen and came up with this, like, feminist toxic avenger. I think it was maybe my career peaked at that moment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, working with Marie Severin, who, um, for those of you listening, Marie is probably one of the most, like, prolific artists, creators that we've had at Marvel. Um, She is a woman who is working at Marvel, I think beginning in, like, the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s. But she's been on everything, like, literally been on everything. What was... I mean, what was it like working with Well, Marie? she had an irrepressible sense of humor. I mean, she was just so cynical and dark and ironic and satiric. And I wasn't friends with her outside the office. I always wanted to be, but I <laughs> sort of couldn't figure out how to do that. But, you know, you'd go over to her corner when you needed 
something that brought you back down to earth, you know, in terms of like whatever the shenanigans were going on at Marvel. She was very like grounding. She was a very grounding friend. The whole bullpen was. We had a whole room full of drawing boards and just originals everywhere and everybody working on them. And if you had a book that was late, I mean, I don't know how you send books out now, but we used to just finish them, you know, be blowing on the ink, you know, doing art corrections, filling in blacks, all hands on deck, then slapping a rubber band around it and then just putting it in a stack. And it was very tactile. The pages, you could hold them, smell them. The glue would dry and fall, and you'd have to stick a balloon back on. You know, the word balloons were pasted right Mm -hmm. on. So that you felt like you were inside a comic. You were really living the comics. And George Rousseau was right there doing the coloring. Um, Marie Severin, you, you could just sit there with her, John Romita Jr., and do all the sketches for the cover. And uh, you had people like Al Milgram, Larry Hama, Carl Potts were kind of the three artists on staff that were also editors. So if you brought in a page and says, you know, I can't really figure out what's wrong with this storytelling, but I'm really not getting the sense that this guy's lifting off the ground and Al Milgram would slap a piece of vellum and he'd say, well, why don't we just redraw it so that, you know, I think the problem is his foot's cut off and you're never going to get a sense of lift without the foot cut off. And then he'd do a whole redo of it, go back in the office, sit with the artist. You know, it was all very tactile, fast. Like you were literally building a comic book together. Like here's a piece, here's a piece. Yes. Right. That's so, I mean, you know, now things are so different because everything is digital. Like, I think the closest that we had to what you're talking about was maybe like eight, nine years ago when we were in our old office buildings. And we did have that literal like bullpen. Everyone was in one room and you'd go in there and be like, I have a disaster. Like, I need to fix (laughs) this entire page. Like, the panel ordering is all wrong or like the coloring is just complete crap or whatever. And you'd have folks you could go to. Now it's so much more like quiet email. Tap, tap, tap. Yeah. Can you fix this for me? Like, it's well, it's I a think, different experience. Um, there's a couple things to use, you know, big words, osmosis and synergy. You know, being in the cauldron where the comics were made, where everyone who worked on staff made comics, you had to either write or draw or letter or do something. You weren't really considered a full-fledged editor if you didn't, actually make comics and and it it become it was important because you have to know how to make them to edit them you know not absolutely you know because there are genius editors out there who never made comics so you had to know soup to nuts and the atmosphere there you learn by osmosis it's not like anyone sat you down and said i'm going to teach you this now you just listened so you had archie goodwin who was considered like the best at plot mechanics just pure plot mechanics he was sitting there and he would look at a plot or you could talk to him about a problem you had like how do I get you know this piece of the plot to work so you had all these mentors and then it was almost it was weird it was almost like then suddenly you felt like you were becoming a mentor and you were mentoring your assistant editors and then you quit (laughs) (laughs) so inspiring (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that's really incredible because there was. This sounds like there's like such a richness of knowledge that's just around you, and I feel like you know. And I'm I'm just fascinated with this time period because so many of you guys were literally, as you said, making comics, but you were also wearing so many different kinds of hats. And, you know, yes, there were editors and editors who would also draw. And then there's editors who are also going to write. And I know there's this time period which, you know, I look back at fondly where I'm like, oh, you guys would go in and you could you had opportunities to pitch stories that you could write yourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. What was that process like? How did that come about where editors were writing? that the editor, it still worked the same way it does now in terms of the editor sought you out. So. It's not like I was going into people's offices and pitching while I was up there. Mm-hmm. They would have something they wanted to do and thought you were the one to do it. And, you know, if they wanted something a little offbeat, I was kind of the offbeat person. Let's try something new. Let's try something different. And I think because for Daredevil, I mean, Denny O'Neill was a journalist. Denny and I always used to talk about how do you put journalistic issues, social issues, how do you put all that stuff in a superhero comic? And he, of course, famously wrote some of the best social justice stories. And, you know, we were both kind of like wannabe journalists. And I was pulling things off the streets of New York, 80s New York, and wanting to put it in my stories. And Ralph, um, he needed a new Daredevil writer after Frank Miller left. And this is Ralph Macchio, right? Ralph Macchio, sorry, yeah. yeah. And... I think he just had a bunch of us turn in fill-ins, you know, turn in a, a story, a fill-in issue while he... And I did this story with uh, Barry Windsor Smith that kind of... I think it felt a little bit like it had shades of Frank Miller, but it was going someplace new, and it had this kind of documentarian street stuff going on in it that was a little different not different in the history of comics. It was something that Denny inspired me to do. And so, you know, that's how that job happened. And then Mark Grunewald asked me to kill Spider-Woman. <gasps> and it was like, there's a lot of weird hindsight stuff, like your memories of what happened then have become so polished, who knows if they're real or not. You know, in hindsight, I wonder if I got that job because nobody else wanted it. Because I think people who were more professionals in the field knew it's not a nice thing to kill a character. And, you know, I... Thank God you didn't have the internet back then. (laughs) I know. But for some reason, I kind of thought, in hindsight, years later, did Mark pick me for that job because I was a chump? I was like a newbie, you know. She doesn't know how horrible it is to kill a character. And, you know, it was his idea. The sales were plummeting on Spider-Woman. Um, and they had, you know, we used to have a cutoff line. Comics sold pretty well back then. They sold like, you know, 100,000, hundreds over 100,000. And if, you're, if the comic dropped to, I can't remember the number, I think it was like 30,000 or something which would probably be considered a healthy comic today, you know, you basically had to kill it. And um, he decided he wanted to use these last, it was like four issue. He said, do a four issue arc where you kill her. And so I did. And then what happened? (laughs) 
<laughs> then you quit. No. <laughs> well, I do remember that um, I got a letter. I got a lot of letters. I got a lot of, back then we called it fan mail, but this was a lot of hate angry. <laughs> this was a lot of hate mail. It was like, you know, I identified with her. She was my, and I think that was the moment that I really realized the responsibility, the obligation you have to, you know, and, and I remember Mark and I talking about how we were going to kill her without killing her. Like we sent her to the astral plane so that you, there was an out, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, but it's still, it was, uh, so, and, and to answer your question of minute, many minutes ago, I don't remember ever pitching anything to anyone at Marvel. I think that they would just come to you and say, would you like to try this? You had a really important role in Daredevil and then creating Typhoid Mary, which is a character I've always personally just been so fascinated by. I think she's such an amazing character. What was that process like, like joining Daredevil, getting into the space of writing that character, and then kind of creating this very dark, almost demented, but really complex character? Well, it's it's interesting, again, in hindsight, I because this was pre-internet, and people weren't scrutinizing comics like they do now. I think that we did a lot of wild things because we thought that they would it would all just end up in some garbage bin. You know, we were doing monthly comics and they were on deadline and sometimes you'd have to write one overnight. You know, if you if you had a, your artist was late and the pages came in like 30 pages of you know you had to write it that night. So there was a lot of really um I think your unconscious played a bigger role because you were just working so fast. And because you didn't have the internet and everyone scrutinizing everything, I think we could do a lot of wacky stuff without really caring because we just thought, this is a crazy storyline, let's try it, you know? So she, Typhoid Mary came out of like a whole bunch of different things. It was it was me wanting to give Daredevil a good villain Building off of the fact that he seemed to be a guy who liked bad girls and seemed to have a, you know, like to mess his own life up on some level. And she just got darker and darker. When I think about it, she ended up, she ended up a man killer. She was like, she became like, she would go into a battered women's shelter and get the files on what men had done what to what women and go match bruise for bruise what had been done to them. They, could you do a story like that today? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, you could? <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, I feel like I mean, we could. In the Black Widow series, the Suska sisters are really... Oh, they're tearing some they're, stuff yeah. up there. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we, we like to, you know... Uh, I think there's a, the, a darkness to feminism that I'm okay with. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. I remember I did a had her guest star in a Spider-Man once, and I really had her go after Mary Jane, you know? Just like, you're just a homemaker, you know? You're just sitting here waiting for <laughs> Peter to come home, and he's a liar, and he lies to you all the time. You know, I just had her, like, tear Mary Jane apart. <laughs> what was the original inspiration of creating her? I know you wanted to create a villain, but was, was there, like, a certain spark... Is there specific moments or or things that have inspired you to be like, oh, this is an idea for a character that I think would be really interesting or a storyline or something like that? I think I just wanted a complex female to write because there, 
It wasn't, you know, now people say, what is it, the lampshade, the refrigerator? They use all these, like, objects where, <laughs> like, if the woman, if you could replace the woman with the lampshade, should she even be in the comic or refrigerator? What does that mean? I can't remember. It's all these. Fridging women, yes. Fridging women. Yeah. There's all these household objects that sure. are now, like, metaphors for <laughs> women not being strong in comics. And I think there was a little bit of that back then. You had, you didn't have really strong females except in the office that I was working in mm. with Chris Claremont. I mean, who knows? Maybe Chris inspired me. I mean, Chris was just a natural feminist. And, you know, his female characters were more interesting and more important than his male characters. So, you know, I, it's, I don't really remember where typhoid came from other than that I wanted a strong female character and for all i know chris was the inspiration well, thank you chris we just did it we just did a um uh, a podcast with karen green who's uh-huh. i don't know if you're familiar with her but yes. she's yeah so karen is um has curated this amazing collection of graphic novels and comics and cartoons and uh we were talking a lot about chris and she did a, a reading from one of his notes about storm oh. and the way he described her which is, it's true. Like, he understood multi-layered complex characters in general, but he did it so well with with women. Well, it's funny because I went up to Karen's um, archives and she was showing me Chris's notebooks and I literally had flashbacks. His handwriting, the <laughs> yeah. way that he would, like, ideas would spark ideas would spark ideas. And it was this, you know, and I remember sitting, those notebooks, they were, I remember them from our endless lunches and dinners, story meetings and talking. And because he just, he threw out a bazillion ideas and Wheezy trained me. I like to call myself just a clone of Louise Simons. And I, and that's this osmosis mentoring thing that happened at Marvel, which probably happens now too, where I just watched her work with Chris and just quietly listened and learned everything and then used her methods, basically. Was she your she was direct the, boss or Yeah, editor? she was the editor. I was the assistant editor. Wow. So, um, and Louise Simonson, um, who is also a legend here at, at Marvel, she has done a lot of different things. Uh, if you guys have heard of Power Pack, she co-created that. And... Uh, hopefully we can try to get her on a podcast at some point. <laughs> I know. We, I feel like she's we, great. We've yeah. talked she's to her great. about it before. Do it. We've had her on a panel. Yes, we've had her on a panel, but we'll get her yeah. on a on a podcast. Well, the um, Power Pack thing was amazing because back then, and and I've I've sometimes again, it's it's hindsight knowledge because I get interviewed a lot where people are like, "Oh, you were a trailblazer," and and sometimes I think, but you know, I was I was taking. On a man's role. I was writing Punisher, Wolverine, Daredevil. I was writing like a man. Let me put it that way. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I never thought, gee, I should be writing narratives for women. And that's what I think the women that are are actually the trailblazing women of today that are a lot younger than me, they're writing for women. I don't think... I think I was just trying to play in the boys' league. So, but what I think and why I feel like I will disagree with you because I think you are, in the sense that I feel like you very much are a trailblazer because what tends to happen is, okay, let's have a woman write the woman thing. And I think what's so great about what you have done and what you've accomplished is that 
you can take any character and just write them. I think you just happen to be writing Daredevil and Punisher and, you know, like those characters because we needed to write, those were popular characters and we needed it. And I just love the fact that, like, you weren't, like, assigned to something based on your gender. No. You know, and you wrote just as crazy and just as high octane and dark and gritty stories as a man could write, absolutely, but it's still very much... Very much yours. I mean, I actually wish more of that would happen because what's happening now, which I think is incredible and we need it, is that we are there are a lot more women writing, but they're writing specifically female characters. And I think crossing the line to the next having them write male characters, that is something that's relatively new. Is that I've thought about this. And again, all my all my opinions, I'm not really sure about them, you know, (laughs) but I remember I've always had problems with the fight scenes I always thought they were kind of like tumors on the narrative and I always had problems with the basic escalation of a action comic in that somehow even if it was like a meat cute somehow you have to start fighting each other mm-hmm. and that's a superhero comic and I I started training in karate, boxing, judo, because I really wanted to choreograph great fights. I wanted to know what it was felt like to get punched and punched. That's awesome. And I, I got into it as as deep as I could, and I think it helped. But at the same time, I was always uncomfortable. And, you know, in hindsight now, I wonder if the escalation narrative and the fight itself is not something that women necessarily take to that easy. And I don't want to get all gendered here (laughs) and then get slammed for being gendered. But there is something, I think, to to that. Uh, You know, I I agree. I I don't know what it is for me, too. And I've I've made a bunch of comics. I've been in the industry for a little bit. And I still feel like the action sequence seems... I feel like oftentimes we force an action sequence where I'm not sure if we need them. Um, and I am I am much more interested in like that character development and what's going to happen. And if you can do something clever with the action, I think that's more interesting than just let's punch someone in the face. And I think back in the day, I mean, now I, I can't imagine doing anything other than a full script. But the back in the day, I think that you would sort of do less of a full script for the action scenes and just kind of hope your artist had some ideas for how you, yet again, people are going to punch each other, you know, (laughs) and you'd layer it, you know, you'd layer it with metaphor. I had this bullet, bullet character whose son was terrified of nuclear war fight daredevil and so i had them smash through a peace rally and i was like yes okay let's layer it with (laughs) metaphor so people can really understand how uncomfortable i am with fight scenes (laughs) well it didn't come across in your writing it still works i don't know if you had like very talented artists with you but it well i did i mean you can't i mean that's the whole thing with storytelling is that you know everybody talks to the writer about the stories but most of the artists i've worked with have been equal storytellers that whole Daredevil run would not have been what it was without John Romita Jr. I mean, oh, yeah. he brought this elegance and class and sense of design. And, you know, I knew that he always had that stuff covered. And there was often an exchange of ideas with him. He came up with Shotgun. He came up with the character that we was like somebody he wanted to draw. 
And I must admit, Typhoid's merry entire fashion sense, including the big hair and fishnets came out of John's brain. Love it. Classic <laughs> 80s girl. Very 80s. She's so 80s. I love her. Like, I've always loved her. But she, like, when I see her, she's like the epiphany of what New York City to, like, obviously I didn't experience New York City in the 80s, but that's what I think of New York City. Like, I feel yeah. like it's such a good throwback. Well, it throwback. was. I mean, Times Square was like, a, it was sleaze doing after, part, you know, it was brothels. It was as street walk. It was drugs everywhere. It was exactly as it is in the comics, you know, from the 80s. And it's funny because there was a Marvel documentary. They wanted me to walk around Times Square and try and find the. <laughs> and I was like, you realize I'm just going to look at every inch and go, nope, can't find it. Yeah. Can't find- nope, Daredevil's city, Daredevil's Hell's Kitchen is gone, you know. I actually, it's, I lived uh, on a street that was mentioned in a Daredevil comic. Oh, cool. And I was like, oh my God. And it was like this little kid running to Daredevil and be like, come, come, come. Like so-and-so was getting like mugged on this exact street. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I'm the building right next to that. And it's and it was like this really dark, decrepit place. And no, Hell's Kitchen is a completely... But there's great Mexican food. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also that. Well, what about, was there any difficulty switching from like writer to editor to writer to editor, like back and forth? I mean, the the offices stayed open late and most of us got in, did our editing all day and then everyone would leave and you'd stay and you'd write at night. Was there a particular like story or series or moment that you would say is like you're most fond of? I think just the synergy of working with artists. Right now I'm working on two comics one with David Aha, and he's in Spain, and the other comic is a Italian artist, and I may never meet them, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just, I do miss that kind of getting together with the artist, walking around on the street with them, talking about stuff together. So, um, yeah, I mean, that Marie Severance story, I told you my life peaked when I did a comic with her. <laughs> and I also did a comic with Steve Ditko. Oh, wow. You know, he he used to come into the office a lot. He was a lot of fun. He didn't want to talk about comics at all. He wanted to talk about, you know, socialism and communism and anarchy and all this stuff. And again, Ralph Macchio's office was the spot for Steve. He felt comfortable there with Ralph. And... I don't remember how it happened, but one day Steve needed work. I'm sitting there. I'm writing Daredevil. Johnny needed a break. And Steve and I, like, talked for five minutes and came up with a story idea. And, again, I don't really remember the conversation, but when I look back at it, it was probably Steve's idea because it was a bunch of anonymous people running around the city with bombs and bags like some kind of early notion of terrorism and I just feel like Steve must have come up with that (laughs) and tossed it at me and you know what do you want to draw I want to draw a bunch of people that all look alike with bombs in their bag (laughs) okay let's put a baby in one well (laughs) oh my god sounds like my conversations with Mark Miller back in the day (laughs) um what I mean I love your writing because there is this this sense of realness, like down-to-earth realness and tension and complexity with, like, every moment. Do you have 
some sort of ritual that you do to find story ideas or do you sort of come upon them in your daily I life? I mean, I think if I'm if I'm trying to think of how to inspire young writers, I would say pull from your own life. A lot of what happened in my comics was just stuff I was going through. You know, if there was an insane asylum, it meant I had a friend in an insane asylum. If there was anything that was happening in my life, I would try and put in the comics, whether it was a friend or uh, interviewing people and I would say just try try and get more and more and more honest and pull from what you have inside you. And the other thing that no one has time for, sadly, because they're monthlies, but if you can manage to have a little more time, put the script away, sleep on it, be able to let your unconscious work. Like I find that my unconscious... I keep a notebook by the bed. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you, you, you go, oh, you run the story through your head as you're about to go to sleep, literally, sometimes. And then also having a friend that you tell the story to, because if you're having trouble telling the story, you, there's a problem in the story. It should just, you should mm. be able to talk it like around a campfire. And if you can't do that, there's something wrong with your narrative and you have to kind of fix it until you can tell it like a campfire story. I mean, does I have different methods, the falling asleep, letting my unconscious work? <laughs> That's a really easy one. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> the fun, grabbing a friend and, and also dialogue. Grab a friend and act out the dialogue. You'd be surprised at how just having to say the dialogue out loud helps. And, um, you know, I think that probably... I was so afraid of boring kids or not giving them their money's worth. I think I would pack too many ideas into a comic. And if I had to look back on my career, I would think, I look at some of my comics, I'm like, there's 50 ideas in here. You could have. <laughs> You could have stretched this out for five years instead of put it all, you know. I think, you know, it's it, trust a simpler, simpler idea. And it's funny, I did one Marvel story last year, and it was the first time I'd done a Marvel story in, like, two decades. I was interviewed, and somebody said, which character, which Marvel character do you want to write? And I said, well, I know what I don't want to write. These days, I don't want to write Captain America. And then a Marvel editor called me up and went, I just heard your podcast why don't you write me a Captain America story? <laughs> and I was like, you got to be kidding. I just said in an interview. And he says, I know, I heard it. And then I thought, this is like a schoolyard when you get called out on the schoolyard to fight. <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay. You know? So you wrote it. Yeah, just yeah. a 10-pager. <laughs> How was that experience for you? <laughs> I mean, it was weird because it was, you know, Captain America is so complicated and so profound and so symbolic. And I did so I decided, you know what, I don't have the, the bandwidth to really think yeah. about my Captain America. So I just said, I'm going to write a simple evergreen, not very deep, simple riff so I avoided the whole thing, really. Yeah, I actually feel like you probably would have done a really great like Hydra Cap story. Like you could have uh. done Secret Empire. Yeah, Watch I out, mean, Nick Spencer. Yeah. But I, yeah, you know, like that. If you take on a series, you have an obligation to read everything yeah. that went before and put some deep research into it. It's too much work. This yeah. is a ten pager. <laughs> this is a ten pager. And the last time I had written Captain America, 
I got all this hate mail where people were like, get the commie off the book. Because, <laughs> of course, I don't remember what was going on at the time. I think it was like the Reagan era or something. And, you know, I had Captain America really angry at all the wars America was getting into and, and, and like seeing things on the newsstand and getting really angry. And I got this one great letter from somebody who said, you know, I loved your story. But Captain America did something he never would have done. He ripped a magazine in half and he didn't pay for it. <gasps> and I went, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no prize for you. Yeah. yeah, no prize. Do you still have no prizes? We still do. Yeah, we don't. I don't even know how. Like, I think Tom Breward still sends them out. But yeah, we talk yeah. about them some often. Yeah. Well, but you've been so busy because you've been working on this exhibit, right? Yes. Yeah, so two years ago, or I started working for a company, SC Exhibitions, that does touring museums. And we did a street art museum in Germany that toured a bunch of cities. And Disney Germany, because his company's in Germany, approached us about doing a Marvel Museum, And so we just last year launched an 80 years of Marvel history museum at Mopop in Seattle. And this Friday, I don't know, I'm probably dating something. Well, we can say April, the date. April, April 12th? 12th yeah. April 12th, we premiere. We're having our big opening bash at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And again, it's 80 years of Marvel history. And it starts with, like, the newsstands and goes through the ups. And it's almost like the narrative is like a Marvel comic. It's got the ups and downs of the, you know, War of the Years, the, you know, the kind of uh, suppression of comics, the comics code. Marvel going bankrupt. Marvel rising again. Marvel going bankrupt again. <laughs> Marvel rising again. But then we've also got a, a lot of original art, which is becoming something you see less. And I think that's what's so special about it. We have, like, uh, Jack Kirby, Black Panther. We have that famous Hulk cover by Steranko where he's being crushed by the logo. We have original art from Frank Miller from all different eras. of, And then we have these really fun build-outs. Like, we have... Dr. Strange's Infinity Hall, where you can stand and see every possible future. That's awesome. And yeah. walk into the glass picking one. No, <laughs> it's a mirrored, mirrored room. And we have Spider-Man statue, and we have Ms. Marvel and uh, Lockjaw. It's a really, I have not seen it yet. All I've heard is just rave reviews about the exhibit. And I'm so excited for us to go and check it out. And honestly, for those of you guys listening, Highly, highly recommend it for Marvel fans. You want to take a quick trip to Philadelphia if you're on the East Coast or just fly in. I, I guarantee it will be well worth it. I've seen some amazing shots on Instagram. Well, it's very it. Instagrammable. Yeah. Because you, you can hang with the panther. You can hang with the thing on a couch. He's asleep. Yeah. And we just got the green costume from Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. The one that she's in for like the first her, her Cree costume, yes, yeah. her Cree yeah. costume, yeah. and see, and we have all the Panther costumes. Seeing all the original costumes is amazing because the the actual seamstress work, the building, they're either beautiful, yeah, I mean they're really beautifully done. We have Doctor Strange, uh, a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, it's it's really quite an accomplishment. So congratulations on the thank you on the new the new uh, uh, reveal. <laughs> And thank you so much for being here with us. We greatly appreciate it. 
And also, thank you for being a trailblazer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it's <laughs> nice to know that I've only written like one story for Marvel in 20 years, but I'm still considered <laughs> the Marvel family. Yeah. You always uh, will be considered uh, the, the Marvel family. Uh, you have done such important work, and I'm... I just do hope people go back and read your stuff because you're a big part of Marvel history and, of course, always a part of our family and our and our future. Thank, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Anne for joining us. And before we get to some housekeeping stuff, we're actually welcomed back by Lorraine Sink to talk 1980s characters. Whoa. I do, I'm like, whenever I think of like Lorraine, I think of our old show, Thrift the Book Marvel Show, and we used to do Marvel Master Comics Theater, and we would do like, we would do this like 1940s voice. So I hope when. No, the, you do. You sound you sound like a television show from the 1940s. That's what I think of Lorraine Sink in my head. That's not what she sounds like. 1950s. Yeah. Um, but Lorraine is joining us again to talk all about the 1980s, iconic characters and creators. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you, ladies. I am back for another celebration of Marvel's 80th anniversary. And this month, we are diving into the totally awesome tubular killer 80s. I don't know why I do that voice, but that is what I do when I talk about the 1980s. So, of course, like I do every month, I am going to dive into three characters that I think are very important from the 1980s. And these are just my opinions, but, you know, I'm the one with the microphone, so let's do it. So today I'm going to be talking about Kitty Pride, the shadow cat, the samurai, the lady about town who is one of the X-Men's, in my personal opinion, coolest chicks ever. I'm going to be talking about She-Hulk, the bodacious Jade Giantess, and I'm going to be talking about Monica Rambeau, one of the most powerful characters ever created in the Marvel Universe. Don't at me. Please at me. I'd love to have that conversation with you online. I'm kicking it off with Kitty Pride because she kicked off the 1980s. In January of 1980, she made her first appearance as a young teenager in Uncanny X-Men number 129 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, two of the most iconic X-Men creators ever. We're introduced to her in Uncanny X-Men 129, as I said, and she's just a 13-year-old girl, and she's suffering from some headaches, but she's also being secretly recruited by both the Hellfire Club via Emma Frost, the mean diamond lady, as well as by Xavier and the X-Men. While Professor Xavier talks to Kitty Pride's mom, Mama Pride, Kitty goes and has a milkshake with Aurora, aka Storm, and they're having a heart-to-heart when they get attacked, and the X-Men fight back, protect Kitty Pride, and Kitty Pride's powers manifest for the very first time when she phases through a diner wall, and she has no idea why that happened, but soon she realizes, oh, I'm a mutant, I have powers, and is, bang, recruited by the X-Men. Now, Kitty Pride is super special in Marvel Comics, I think because she got to grow up a lot faster, literally, in the comics than a lot of our characters. A lot of our characters tend to stay in a certain age range. She really grew up as a teenager in the X-Men. She fell in love with Colossus. She did the ultimate teenager move, calling Professor Xavier a jerk in one of my favorite panels ever. She rocked tons of ridiculous fashions like Shadowcat, where she had a big puffy jacket and wore a leotard. 
hard. She got to hang out in Japan with Wolverine. And she saved the planet Earth when she faced an enormous bullet coming at the planet. And I think what's really impressive about Kitty Pride at the end of the day is that she's gone from this character that is super 1980s teenager, just like kind of the kid sister of the group and has become a huge leader and powerhouse with a ton of depth and different colors to her personality. So she is one of, I think, the most important characters in Marvel Comics, but also of the totally awesome 80s. Next up, I'm talking about one Savage Lady. I'm, of course, talking about the Savage She-Hulk. She made her first appearance in Savage She-Hulk number one by Stan Lee and John Bushima. And Jennifer Walters is the cousin of Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner being, of course, a Hulk. So it's not genetic. They, they grew up together. They'd spend summers together. But really what happened, Jennifer Walters is a lawyer. She was kind of a quiet, sweet hardworking lady who became a lawyer and she started pursuing a case against this mob boss. Well, the mob boss does not like that she is onto him and also has ties to her dad, who's a sheriff and has messed with her family already. So he goes out and he is going to get Jennifer Walters, the lawyer who done him wrong. But something unexpected happens. He does get her, but she needs a blood infusion. Just so happens her cousin Bruce Banner is visiting. His blood has gamma radiation, but you know what? Better than the lady dying. So he gives his blood, and lo and behold, Jennifer Walters, when she gets angry, gets green. Over time, she learns to control her more hulkish form, and she actually is able to keep her wits about her. And you'll notice that she doesn't change back into human form a ton. She really loves being this big green lady. And part of that is really cool. I think she's one of the most originally body positive characters that exist in comic books. She was all about owning her physical self. She was very proud of herself. She was very proud of being 6'7". She loved being powerful. And you don't see that a lot, I think, until this date where you see somebody who's like, yeah, I'm taller than the men. Love it. If there is one character that has crushed the 80s, probably both literally and figuratively, it is definitely the She-Hulk. And my last but definitely not least character is Monica Rambeau. She was introduced in 1982 in Spider-Man Annual Number 16 by Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. and Sr. And I just love Monica Rambeau. Like, get at me, world. She is one of my favorite characters of all time. There's just something about her that is so delightfully like snarky and brilliant and also just uber powerful. So she was originally introduced with these superpowers, but she didn't start that way. She was a woman living in New Orleans and she worked for the Harbor Patrol and she was a lieutenant, which meant she was essentially like a water cop. She went to her boss and she said, I want to be a captain. When am I going to be a captain? And he kind of gives her the runaround and she's basically calls him out and says, like, you're sexist and racist. When am I going to be a captain? I deserve to be a captain. And he doesn't give it to her. And she basically walks out and she's like, peace, though. So her grandfather's old science bud goes and meets up with Monica and 
tries to enlist her help because she has a boat. And there's this South American dictator who has taken the technology that these two gentlemen have created, and he's going to use it to seriously mess up the world. So Monica, of course, being that good-natured hero at heart, says, yes, I will come with you and I will help undo this grievous wrong. They hop in the boat, they go out to this rig in the ocean, and she does what anyone would do. She's a decoy. She hops out in her bikini. She's like, hi, boys, I'm just a sunbather. Well, meanwhile, this guy goes and tries to dismantle the machine. Very quickly, they realize that someone is on board who's not supposed to be on board, and Monica goes, intervenes, gets in the way of this rig. She gets caught in the explosion trying to dismantle this device, and it is bringing in all kinds of interdimensional energies, which then flood through her body, become one with her, and bam, she like flies out of there. She realizes, oh no, these guys are onto me. I need a costume, right? So she ends up in an old Mardi Gras warehouse where she puts on an old Mardi Gras costume and becomes, bada bing, Captain Marvel. She's got this iconic white suit with wings, sort of like draped fabric under her arms and like a big black star in the middle. So anyways, she ends up in Manhattan, and the whole way that she comes into the Marvel Universe is she's getting attacked. A couple of guys are trying to steal her purse. She really holds her own, and Spider-Man comes up, and he's like, hey, lady, you like great. You didn't even need me. And then she shoots a bunch of energy, and she's like, I don't know what to do. I have all this energy going through my body. Help me out, Spider-Man. Spidey is like, hey, I know who can help you with this. I'm going to take you over to the Avengers. So she goes over to the Avengers. They say, yeah, we'll train you how to use your superpowers for good. And the rest is great. Monica Rambeau goes on to have a very long history with the Avengers, as well as many Avengers teams. One of my favorite, favorite moments that happens in these early years with Monica Rambeau and the Avengers is that the acting chairman steps down from leading the Avengers and they're looking for a new leader. And someone nominates Monica Rambeau and she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm new. And she's kind of like, I'm not sure. And Thor's like, I got it. No problem. Thor will lead. (laughs) And everyone's like, nobody wants that. Too much Thor. And then there's this really, really great moment where Wasp and She-Hulk are like, all y'all boys need to calm down a second and let her decide if this is something she wants to do. And and they're basically like, you can do this. You're awesome. And she's like, great. I'm going to be the chairman of the Avengers. The end. It is such a great issue. It's such a beautiful moment. I just love that sort of moment of like, she's not alone. Anyway, I chose Monica Rambeau for this time because she was created during the 80s. But I really chose her because she is such an incredible character. I think that Monica Rambeau is still waiting to have her day because this is a big, powerful character. She's had a lot of different names. In fact, it's this hilarious thing to me that she was Captain Marvel and then Captain Marvel's son, the original Captain Marvel, the the male Captain Marvel, his son came back and was like, hey, I would like to have my father's name. And she's like, oh, my bad. I didn't know you existed. Here, have, have that name. And then she takes the name Photon and then he comes back and he's like, I've been calling myself Photon. And she's like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Like, fine. If you can't come up with anything, then you can have it. So now we just kind of call her Monica Rambeau. But I love Monica. I do think she transcends time. She is super powerful, unapologetic. She's a natural leader. And in my opinion, 
just one of the most powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. I personally think that her powers are on par with Captain Marvel, aka Carol Danvers' binary powers. She is everything. I am just crossing my fingers and crossing my toes to see more from her in the Marvel Universe, wherever it might be. That's just me putting a gentle prayer into the universe. I have no control over anything, but I can still wish. So that was my awesome 80s wrap up of all of my favorite female characters. You can read more about female characters in the Marvel Universe in my book, Powers of a Girl, if you so choose. Or you can just keep listening to the Women of Marvel podcast because I'm going to be back every month talking about every dang decade that exists in the Marvel Universe. Thanks again to Lorraine for joining us. She'll be back next month for even more with the 1990s, which I immediately just think like Nine Inch Nails. I think like hardcore. I think Seattle. And then I think Teeny Bopper at the end of it. Right? That's how that goes? Sure. I think X-Men. Okay. Oh, yes. I think X-Men. Okay. I think, well, and and Trapper Keepers. And like the giant biggest bell-bottom pants ever. And then like, oh my God, Trapper Keepers. Were you the one who was talking about Trapper Keepers the other day? correct. I talk about Trapper Keepers You really love Trapper Keepers. People should send Santa Trapper Keepers. Yeah, like they were just so handy. They had so many cool designs on them. Anyway, the 90s were a lot of fun. I think about Saved by the Bell and Tiffany Amber Thiessen. Britney Spears. Yeah. Titanic. Rainbow Bright. It's like we clearly grew up in the 90s. Yeah. Surprise. My one disappointing factor of Rainbow Bright is that she does not have rainbow hair. And when everyone says that I look like Rainbow Bright, they clearly are not getting it correct. Anyways, some exciting housekeeping. First up is June is our fifth anniversary of the Women of Marvel podcast. We started this five years ago in uh, the, I believe, the last week of June. In a closet. In a closet, correct. (laughs) Uh, Back then it was you, me, Adri, and... Janine. Janine Schaefer. Um, and we kind of didn't know what we were doing. And look, we're still here now. And we're about to hit our 200th episode. We still don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I think it's fine. You know what? You guys love us. You listen to us. Thank you so much. You know, thanks for everyone who's been here from the beginning. And thanks to those who've joined us along the way. We've actually got some exciting content happening in June. And then leading into July, uh, we will be returning to San Diego Comic-Con. We will have panel and stage events um, coming soon. But it will not only be our 200th episode, we will have be having a special extra long panel with some exciting guests and um, some fun things happening on the stage. And not only that, it is our 10 year anniversary. Oh my God. Right? Isn't that oh crazy? God. Yeah. I remember being, I wasn't on the panel in 2009, but I remember being in the room and I don't think I realized quite what had started. It's like, like us, Marvel Studios, like, oh my God, like just equal. Same. <laughs> same. Same Z's. Same Z's. Same Z's. Um, no, it was, it's pretty cool. I actually didn't realize what women of Marvel would become. And I love that we've had so many different kinds of interactions with our fans, but also uh, just the panels themselves have all been so distinct and so fun. And it's like my favorite. It is my favorite panel to do just because it's so relaxed. It's so genuine. Everyone up there is there because we believe in it and we're not trying to sell you anything. We're just trying to share our love. And you guys are also awesome for showing up every single year. So hopefully um, you will be at San Diego Comic-Con for our big celebration and you're going to sort of party with us. 
bow chicka wow wow yeah, whatever party, party. I, don't I don't do that I got some glow sticks oh maybe we should get some glow sticks no um but what we what we want from you guys at home is do you have a favorite episode do you have a favorite guest do you have a favorite moment from the last almost 200 episodes please send them to us we'd love to highlight and focus on this stuff um, at San Diego Comic Con during our stage event and our panel um, you guys can email them to us at womanof at marvel.com or you can tweet at marvel using hashtag woman of marvel I'm always checking it I'm looking for it um, and uh, you can also stew on that a little bit and we'll ask you uh, every every episode um, but yeah thanks again and what an exciting what an exciting time to be alive yeah let's go with that okay We'll see you guys next time. This is Marvel, your universe.